This evening, we're going to be speaking about meditation. And when we hear the word meditation, many people have various ideas about it. For some people, it brings up the image of some mystical practice in which somehow you go to a different realm in your mind. For other people, it might bring up some idea of a certain type of discipline that is only done in Asia by certain people. But if we want to look more closely at meditation, we need to ask ourselves three questions and, of course, answer them. What is meditation? Why would I want to do meditation? And how to actually do it? So, this first question, what is meditation? Meditation is a method for training our minds to have a more beneficial state of mind or attitude. And this is done by getting into or generating a certain state of mind and repeating it, accustoming ourselves to that. And, of course, there are many, many different types of states of mind or attitudes that would be beneficial. One state of mind could be just more relaxed, less tense and worried. One state of mind could be uh, one that is more focused or a state of mind that is more quiet without just constant mental chatter and worry. One can be a state of mind with more understanding of myself, of life, etc. And one can be a state of mind with more love and compassion toward others. And so we have different types of states of mind that we uh, could achieve through meditation. So then the question is, the second question is, why? Why would I want to generate these states of mind? And for that, we need to look at two factors. What am I aiming for? And what would be the emotional feeling side of this, of why I want to achieve that? So why would I want a more calm and clear mind? Well, one reason, obviously, would be because my mind is not like that and it makes me very troubled. It causes me a great deal of unhappiness and uh, it prevents me from functioning at my best in life. It could also be affecting badly my uh, health. It could be affecting badly my family and my other relationships. It could be affecting badly my work. And so I uh, want to overcome some sort of deficiency, some sort of problem that I have mentally and emotionally. And I'm going to take responsibility to do it in an orderly fashion through something called meditation. And uh, what is the emotional state that would drive me to do this? Well, that could be one of just being completely fed up with and disgusted with this difficult state of mind that I have. And we say, enough already, I've got to get out of this, got to do something. But if, for instance, our aim is to be of more help to my children, to be of more help to my loved ones, then the uh, emotional feeling there could be love and compassion that is driving me to find some method that's going to enable me to be of better help to them. And 
I think it's very important here to have a realistic understanding of meditation. So this goes back to our first question, what is meditation? I think it's unrealistic to think that just by meditation alone it's going to solve all my problems. Meditation is a a tool, it's a method, but when we want to achieve a result, our aim, and we have an emotion behind that, a positive emotion that is driving us to that aim, then we have to realize that a result is not achieved by just one cause. There has to be many, many causes and conditions coming together in order to produce a result. For example, we might have high blood pressure and hypertension, and sure, we need meditation that can help us to worry less, but meditation alone is not going to bring down our blood pressure. It may help, but we also might need to change our diet. We might need to take medication, many things applied together will bring about a result. And the actual methods that are used in meditation, of course, could equally be used to build up a negative state of mind. For example, I'm going to meditate how terrible the enemy is so that I can go out and kill them, right, to develop hatred. But that's not really what we are speaking about here. But rather, we're talking about applying a method to build up a state of mind which is going to be beneficial for us and beneficial for others. Okay, so then we ask the question, how do we meditate? And there are various methods which are used depending on the type of state of mind that we want to be able to develop. But one thing that is common to all the methods is that we need to practice. And practice means to repeat a type of exercise over and over and over again. Just as if we want to train our bodies, we have to practice some physical activity over and over again. Similarly, we need to do the same thing with our minds. Now, that brings up another point which is that meditation is dealing with our state of mind, so it's using a mental method. Now, we could use physical methods to try to change our state of mind. For instance, sitting in various yoga postures, doing various martial art type of movements, tai chi, etc. That's not meditation. That's something which could help to generate a certain state of mind, But meditation is something that you do just with your mind. Now, of course, you could do that while doing some sort of asana postures, while doing tai chi. But those are two things, two different things, two different activities. One we do with our body, one we do with our mind. So, as I said, to bring about an effect, we might need to use many different causes there. So, something with our uh, physical body, Also, diet. Diet can affect our state of mind, but meditation is working with the mind itself. So, if we want to achieve a certain aim, then we have to see what I can change in my life to bring that about. Meditation would be one thing, diet might be another thing, physical exercise might be another thing. Another thing about meditation is, okay, so we're practicing getting into a certain state of mind over and over and over again, right? Either a more calm state of mind or more focused or more loving, whatever it might be. 
But the point is not just to be able to generate that while sitting quietly in a meditation by ourselves or with some other people meditating. The whole point of it is to build up this positive state of mind so thoroughly as a habit that we can apply it at any time during the day when we need it. Ultimately, it becomes something which is just natural. It's just there all the time. We are more loving. We are more understanding. We are more focused. We are more calm. And if we find ourselves not in that sort of state of mind, all we have to do is remind ourselves, oh, be more loving. And just like that, because we have built up through practice the state of mind that we can just instantly go to that state of mind. When we find ourselves, for instance, losing our temper, these sort of things, then, no, I don't want to be like that. Loving. But to generate these states of mind, like being loving, it's not just a matter of discipline. For instance, to be more loving, we need to have some understanding of why to be more loving. So, for instance, in that case, it can be that we're all interconnected with each other. You're a human being just like I am. You have feelings just as I do. You want to be liked and not ignored or disliked, the same as me. And we're all here together on this planet, and we need to get along with each other. One could think of an example. Suppose you were in an elevator with ten people, and all of a sudden the elevator got stuck, and you were trapped there for a few days. How would you relate to the other people in the elevator? Here we are. We're stuck together. We're all in the same situation. Somehow, we have to get along with each other. If we start fighting with each other in this small space, it's going to be a disaster, isn't it? Somehow, we have to work together, cooperate with patience all together to try to get out of this situation. So, if we think of this planet as a very large elevator, then it can be of help. So, it's by thinking like this that then we can generate a state of mind of love toward others and tolerance. To just sit there and say, I'm going to be more loving like that, it's very hard to actually generate any feeling, isn't it? So, when we ask how to meditate, one method is to build up a certain state of mind, like this example of being more loving and tolerant. So we learn about some way of thinking like this. We think about it till we understand it, and it makes sense to us. And then we try to actually generate it while sitting quietly, meditation, while imagining other people around us. Could be people that we know, could be strangers in uh, magazine pictures, and uh, try to generate this state of mind. Another method which is used is to just quiet the mind down so that we get to a more natural state of mind. Now, this is very important to understand here. When we are trying to quiet down, it's not that we're aiming to be like a radio that's turned off. That is not at all the aim. You might as well go to sleep. The aim is to quiet all disturbing states of mind that could be chattering, mental chattering in our head, 
especially when it's worrying or thinking about what happened before and what might happen in the future. What am I going to have for supper? What am I going to do today? This type of thing. But all of those things are really, they're disturbances. The same thing in terms of certain emotions can be very disturbing, and we want to quiet them down as well, like being nervous, being frightened, these type of things. One also needs to quiet down. But when we quiet down, what we want to be left with is a state of mind which is very clear and alert, a state of mind which either we are able to generate some love and uh, understanding or which just has the natural human warmth that we all have. So that requires a very, very deep relaxation, not just relaxation of the muscles and the body, which of course is necessary, but relaxation of the mental and emotional tenseness and <coughs> tightness, which prevent us from feeling anything, from feeling the natural warmth, the natural clarity of the mind. So this is not an exercise to just turn off and become like a robot. Just nothing. These states of mind are not very easy to generate. Sometimes they are uh, quite painful in the sense of one type of beneficial state of mind can be one in which we have more understanding of ourselves and our situation in life. You see, to have a quiet mind is just a tool. It's not the final aim. But if we have a mind which is more calm, more relaxed, more clear, more open, then we can use it. We can use it for daily life, of course, but uh, we could also use it while sitting in meditation to try to gain more understanding of our life situation. Some people think that meditation means to stop thinking. That's a misunderstanding. What we mean by that, when you hear statements like that, is that we want to stop all the extraneous, unnecessary thinking, like worry, and what am I going to have for supper, and you said that to me yesterday, you're a horrible person, that type of thinking. All of that is in the category of mental wandering and disturbing thoughts. But if we have a clear mind, then we can think much more clearly about what have I been doing in life? What's going on in this relationship that I have? Is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? We can either be analytical in that type of way. This is called introspection, being more introspective about what's going on inside us, what's happening in our lives. So to understand that, we need clarity, we need a calm, quiet mind. So meditation can be a tool that brings us to that state. Also, when you talk about thinking, we hear a lot of mention and a lot of texts about uh, stop being conceptual, be non-conceptual. So in order to actually try to be that way, we have to understand what do we mean by conceptual? Well, some people think that conceptual is just the blah, 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 the talking in our minds. We need to differentiate verbalizing in our minds and having understanding. What we really need is understanding. Whether we verbalize or not, 
Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not helpful. Do you know the difference between the two? For instance, tying our shoes. We understand how to tie our shoes. Most of us, I would hope. Do you have to actually verbalize what I do with this lace and that lace while you tie it? No. In fact, I think most of us would have great difficulty in describing in words to somebody how you tie your shoes. But nevertheless, we have understanding. Okay, so when we try to be non-conceptual, it doesn't mean that we no longer have any understanding of something. We certainly want to maintain understanding. Without understanding, you can't do anything in life. You can't tie your shoes. You can't open the door. I mean, you can't do anything, can you? Okay, so the conceptualization is not just talking about verbalization, and sometimes verbalization is helpful. We need verbalization to be able to communicate to others, don't we? Do we need verbalization in our thinking? Well, not absolutely necessary, but verbalization in itself is just something neutral. We have some meditations which involve verbalization, like, for instance, mantras which maintains a certain type of rhythm or vibration in the mind, which is very helpful. And it helps us to stay focused on a certain state of mind. Like, for instance, when we are generating compassion and love, if you're reciting a mantra like Om Mani Peme Hum, it's a bit easier to stay focused on that loving state of mind. So verbalization itself is not the problem. Although, of course, we need to quiet the mind that's just chattering with garbage. That, of course, we have to quiet. So, but what is conceptualization? What is the conceptual mind? Conceptual mind has to do with thinking in terms of categories. Now, there are various types of categories. One is what we call a preconception. A preconception is like, I expect you to always be like this. You are a terrible person because in the past you did this and this and that, and now I have this preconception that no matter what, you're going to continue to be a terrible person. We've judged already that this person is stupid or this person is so wonderful they're going to do what I ask them to do. That's a preconception. And, of course, if we think that way and we project it onto other people or onto ourselves, that... I'm no good, I'm not going to be able to do anything, this type of thing. We have, there's a big block between ourselves and how we relate with the world and with ourselves. So, this preconception is a type of category. We fit everything interacting with this person into this category of, you're stupid. So, being non-conceptual on one level, There are many, many levels of it, but one level would be to just be open to situations as they arise. Now, that doesn't mean to drop all understanding. Like, for instance, this dog bites. In the past, this dog has bitten many people if if you try to go close to it. So we are careful with the dog, so we have some understanding. But we don't have this preconception that, of course, the dog's going to bite me, so I'm not even going to try to go near. So this is a gentle balance here. So how do we develop that in meditation? We do that by, in meditating, one of the main instructions is meditate without any expectations and without any worries. The expectation that 
it's going to go wonderfully or the worry that, oh, my legs are going to start to hurt or I can't do it, these type of things. These are preconceptions. Or we're sitting there, we're meditating, and then all of a sudden we start thinking, wow, this is really going really great. (laughs) Now we've put it into some category that usually ruins it instantly. So this is a very simple level of explaining what it means to be non-conceptual, but it's where we start. Now, for meditating, of course, we need a conducive situation. And some people think that a conducive situation has to be what I would call almost a Hollywood type of setting. It has to be a special room with candles and a certain type of music and incense and it's a whole Hollywood movie set that's set up. That's not necessary. If you want to have that, okay, but it's certainly not necessary. What is usually uh, always recommended is that the place be neat and clean. We need to show respect for ourselves and what we're doing. So usually there's the practice to clean the room where you're going to be meditating, get everything in order, don't have clothes thrown all over the floor, etc. If the environment around us is orderly, it helps for the mind to become orderly. If the environment is chaotic, it affects the mind. So that needs to be there, and also it's very helpful, especially in the beginning if it's quiet. In the Buddhist tradition, which is what I come from, we certainly do not meditate with music. Music is an external source to try to make us more calm and so on. We don't want to rely on an external source. We want to be able to generate it internally. And music, in many cases, can be quite hypnotic, and you don't want to be in some sort of daze. So we don't need to tranquilize ourselves like in the waiting room of the dentist with this gentle music to try to calm us down. That's not meditation atmosphere. And uh, as for sitting, if we look at the different Asian traditions, there are many different ways of sitting in meditation. The Tibetans and Indians sit cross-legged. The Japanese sit with their legs behind them. People in Thailand sit with their legs to the side. And so the main thing is to sit in a position that's going to be comfortable. And so if we need to sit in a chair, there's no problem. For certain very advanced exercises in meditation, which we're also working with the energy systems of the body, then the posture is important. But we need to be able to meditate in any type of situation. So sometimes if we're used to uh, sitting cross-legged on a cushion, fine, but maybe you're on a plane or you're on a train. And so you can't do that. So you meditate while sitting in your seat. Not a problem. It's important in the beginning that it be quiet, but for many of us, that's not so easy to find a place that's quiet, especially if we live in the city. So many people meditate early in the morning or late at night when there's less traffic noise. And eventually, when we become accustomed enough and advanced enough, then noise doesn't bother us. But that's very, very difficult in the beginning. In general, it's important to see what time of day suits us the best. To meditate right directly after eating, most people, their energy goes down. After eating, you get tired. So that's not the best time to meditate, for example. Some people, when they wake up in the morning, are very fresh and alert. Other people are half asleep for most of the morning. 
So you have to see for yourself. Some people are more alert late at night. Other people, if they try to meditate at night before they go to sleep, it's a struggle to stay awake. So that's not productive. So it's important to judge for ourselves what suits us. Same thing with how we sit. If we're uh, sitting cross-legged, for example, then uh, it's always recommended that we have a cushion beneath our behind. But there are many people that don't use a cushion behind them, so you have to see what works. And if we use a cushion, again, you have to see for yourself how high the cushion, how hard, how soft the cushion. You have to find a type of cushion, a type of posture that's going to minimize your legs falling asleep and your whole session being one of pain and discomfort. So the type of cushion that you use is quite important. It's going to make a difference. Also, the amount of time that we meditate is going to vary as we progress. In the beginning, it's always recommended that we meditate for just a very short time, three or five minutes, because it's going to be very difficult for us to concentrate and be focused for any longer than that. And so it's better to have a short period in which we are more focused than a long period in which we're just mentally wandering and daydreaming or falling asleep. The meditation session must not become a torture session in which you can't wait until it's over. And uh, we're just sitting there feeling horrible because our legs hurt. If we're doing a certain type of Zen meditation, then maintaining the posture and not moving is very important. In other types of meditation, if you have to move your leg, you move your leg. It's no big deal. In all these sort of spiritual practices, it's very important to be relaxed. Don't make such a big, holy, holy deal out of it. Of course, we show respect for what we're doing, but don't make it into a dramatic thing that I'm such a holy being sitting here and I have to be perfect. And one of the most important principles to remember is that everything goes up and down. So some days our meditation will go well, some days it won't go well. Some days we will feel like meditating, some days we won't. It's never going to be the case that every day is going to get better and better and better. Progress is not linear that way. But it's always going to be up and down, and maybe after a few years you'll be able to see a general trend that it's getting better. But it's always going to be the case that some days will be better than others. So, as one of my teachers would say, nothing special. It's going well, nothing special. It's not going well, nothing special. You just continue. That's what is most important, is to persevere. Do it every day, like practicing the piano. You have to do it every day. And if you're doing it just for a few minutes at a time, fine. Then you take a break, and then you do it for another few minutes. You take another little break, another few minutes. Do like that, rather than sitting for an hour in a torture session. So, we can ask how do people start with a meditation, if we want to meditate, how would I begin? And for most people in many traditions, the uh, way that we begin is with meditation focusing on the breathing. And when we're meditating on the breathing, we are just breathing normally, not too deeply, not too shallow, just normal, through the nose. Right? I mean, we certainly don't hyperventilate, <laughs> then we become very, very dizzy. It's not very helpful at all. And we can focus on the breath in two places, either the sensation of the breath coming in and out of the nose, or 
the sensation of the stomach going in and out as we breathe. And if our mind is wandering a great deal and we are up in the clouds, in a sense, what we call spaced out in English, then focusing on the stomach around the navel going in and out helps to ground us. And if, on the other hand, we are very sleepy and dull, then focusing on the sensation of the breath coming in and out the nose helps to raise the energy. So, again, we judge for ourselves what we need at any particular time. And the whole point is to be focused on the breathing with awareness of what's going on. It's not that you're turning your mind off. You're aware of the sensation without saying anything in our minds. And what the uh, real work that's involved here is to recognize as soon as possible when our attention wanders away and bring it back. Or if we start to become dull and sleepy, to wake ourselves up. That's the work that's involved here, and we shouldn't fool ourselves. It's not easy. We tend to be very attached with our thoughts, our mental wandering, and we forget that we need to bring our attention back. We have laziness, and especially if there's some disturbing emotion involved with that thought, like thinking of someone that we're very attached to, that we miss, or someone that we're really angry with, then that's even more difficult to bring the mind back, the attention back. But the breath is always there, so it's something that is stable, that we can bring our attention back to more easily than other objects. And focusing on the breath has many other benefits. The breath is very much connected with the body. And if we're the type of person that's too much in thoughts and in our mind and uh, head in the clouds and so on, focusing on the breath, regardless of where, what point in the body we focus on it, helps to ground us, to bring us more back into our body, into reality. And also, it's very helpful if we have pain. In fact, breathing meditations have been adopted in some hospitals, particularly in the United States, for uh, pain management. If you think of it, a baby is crying. And if the mother holds the baby to her breast and the baby feels the mother's breathing going in and out, is something which is very common. And so, similarly, if we focus on our own breathing, it's something which can help to calm us down, particularly if we have a lot of pain. And not just talking about physical pain, but it can also be emotional pain. So, we have this type of meditation. Why don't we try it for a few minutes? Also, I should mention what you do with your eyes. In some traditions, meditate with your eyes closed. Its advantage is that you have less distraction. Its disadvantage is that it's more easy to fall asleep. Also, it gets you in the habit that if I want to calm down or meditate, I have to close my eyes, which is then very difficult in real life. The uh, Tibetans meditate with their eyes open, but not wide open looking around, but just looking loosely down toward the floor. And uh, again, we have to judge for ourselves what is best.
देखें वंस डाउन विथ मेडिटेशन लाइक दिस ऑन द ब्रेथ देन वी कैन यूज दैट क्वाइट एंड अलर्ट स्टेट ऑफ माइंड वी कैन यूज इट टू ट्राई टू बी मोर अवेयर ऑफ वट माई इमोशनल स्टेट इज बट वी कैन यूज इट फॉर इंस्टेंस in a meditation to generate more love toward others so let's try that so to generate love you have to work yourselves up to a state of love in the beginning you can't just say that's it i love everybody that doesn't have any feeling to it so through a thought process here thought is our friend it's helpful not something that we want to get rid of but uh, through a, a thinking process we remind ourselves we're all interconnected we're all here together everybody is the same we all want to be happy nobody wants to be unhappy everybody wants to be liked no one wants to be disliked or ignored just as is the case with me and since we're all here together and interconnected then love is the feeling of may everybody be happy and have the causes for happiness how wonderful it would be if everybody were happy if nobody had any problems and by building ourselves up to this state of mind and heart of love then we imagine a warm sort of a light like a yellow light shining from us with love out to everybody like the sun so let's try that we're all interconnected Nobody exists in isolation from everybody else. Everybody is the same. Everybody wants to be happy. Nobody wants to be unhappy. Just like me. Everybody wants to be liked. Nobody wants to be disliked or ignored. Same as me. So how wonderful it would be if everybody could be happy. How wonderful it would be if I could bring happiness to everyone. And then with some warm feeling in our hearts, we imagine this warm loving feeling shining from us like a gentle yellow light from the sun and reaching everyone equally may everyone be happy again if our attention wanders we bring it back to this feeling
Good. So if we accustom ourselves to these types of meditation, then we develop tools that we can use in our daily life. So just to focus on our breath is not going to be what we're going to be doing all day long. That's not the final aim, is it? But by always bringing our attention back to a focus, then we can use that in daily life. For instance, when we're speaking with somebody, they're speaking back to us. If our mind starts to wander and think, you know, what are they going to shut up already and making all sorts of judgments and comments in our mind about what they're saying, we need to quiet all of that and just bring our attention back to the person and what they're saying and generate that state of mind that understands this is a human being, they want to be liked, they want to be listened to when they're talking, when they're speaking to us. They want to be taken seriously, just as we do. So the skills that we develop in meditation, the whole purpose is to be able to apply them in daily life. We're not aiming to get the Olympic gold medal for being able to sit perfectly in meditation. This is the aim. So that's why we started our discussion with the whole emphasis on what are we aiming for? Why do we want to meditate? What's the purpose? And we want to meditate in order to be able to help us in our lives, personally and in our interactions with others. And to do that, I need to build up more beneficial habits. And this is what meditation is all about. So, what questions do you have? What is tantric meditation? What is tantric meditation? Well, we find it in both... Hinduism and Buddhism, so I'll just speak in terms of Buddhism. It's a very advanced practice, it's not a beginner practice, in which we visualize ourselves as a Buddha figure, a type of Buddha, and on the basis of understanding reality, that I'm not there yet, but I have all the potentials to be able to become an enlightened Buddha, And in our imaginations, we imagine acting like a Buddha. In other words, sending out light and benefiting everybody and being able to communicate perfectly with everybody and so on. Being able to multiply into millions of forms to be able to benefit others while knowing that we're not there yet. But by practicing in this way, it helps to build up the causes for becoming like that more quickly. And all these Buddha figures that we visualize ourselves as, not all of them, but many of them, have multiple arms and multiple legs and multiple faces. And these all represent different realizations or understandings that we have as a Buddha, that we need to develop and that we have as a Buddha. So, for instance, six arms could represent the six far-reaching attitudes or paramitas. So, generosity, ethical discipline, patience, perseverance, stability of mind, and discriminating awareness, what's usually called wisdom. Now, to try to have all of those at the same time in our minds is very difficult if we try to do that abstractly. But if we represent these six graphically with these six arms, it's easier to try to put it all together and have these six together in our state of mind at the same time. And so, for this reason, Tantra is a very advanced practice, 
if we haven't done all the practices earlier before this to be able to generate generosity, to be able to generate patience, etc. How could you possibly generate all of them at the same time? And if we don't understand the reality of what's going on, if we don't understand that this is simply in our imagination based on our potentials, uh, we don't exist solidly as this figure or solidly stuck in my current level of development, if we don't understand that, then we think, I really am this figure, and then it's no different from a crazy person thinking that they're Cleopatra or Napoleon. And so Tantra practice is something that has to be entered upon very carefully, and not as a beginner. Also, there are some Tantra practices, I mean, there's different classes of Tantra, but there are some that work with the energy systems of the body, chakras, channels, etc., And the point of all of that is to be able to work with this subtle energy system with perfect concentration in order to get to the subtlest level of mind, which is the most conducive for seeing reality and cutting through confusion. But Tantra practice is something which really requires the guidance of a properly qualified teacher. And in general, meditation requires a qualified teacher, not just somebody to teach us how to sit, But if we have problems that come up and so on, somebody who has a great deal of experience, personal experience, who can guide us, to help us if we have some problems. That's very important. And of course, our attitude toward this teacher needs to be one of confidence based on really evaluating them. Are they really qualified or not? And that becomes very difficult because there are many charlatans who claim to be spiritual teachers and many teachers who are not very well qualified. So one has to be very discriminating in terms of finding a teacher and not just go to somebody just because they happen to be popular. Yeah. Uh, Good evening. My question is, in uh, Dzogchen meditation, it is said that uh, when a practitioner is experiencing Rigpa, state of mind, then uh, he uh, have uh, different uh, sort of feelings, uh, experiences like blissful state of mind, like feeling of uh, I am one with the whole world and other, and uh, it is said that it is very important not to be attached to these uh, kind of feelings, but the question is, these feelings arise anyway, uh, we can't avoid arising these feelings, and so how to deal with this problem? Well, I can just quote my teacher, nothing special. (laughs) Nothing special. It's a blissful feeling. First of all, to actually achieve a state of rikpa is so unbelievably advanced and difficult that most of the time we are fooling ourselves into thinking that we've achieved it. For those who are unfamiliar, rikpa means pure awareness, and it's the most subtle, subtle, subtle level of mind that underlies all moments of more gross levels of mind. And it is that level of mind in terms of its situation of being unstained. It's called pure. In other words, that level of mind could still have certain habits with it that can cause problems in the future. So we're talking about that state of mind in its most purified state. It's unbelievably subtle, and it has certain qualities. And one is being blissful, but that doesn't mean whoopee, blissful, like that. 
come. It naturally radiates out with warmth to communicate to others, and it has a quality of deep understanding of reality. But within that, <laughs> the understanding of reality is not that we're all one. That's a Hindu idea. That's not in Buddhism. We are all the same. We all exist in the same way. We all have the same potentials. But in Buddhism, we always speak in terms of everybody always, even as Buddhas, retaining their individuality. No. It's not that we become one big undifferentiated soup. We're all interconnected with each other as individuals. But in any case, my point is that we can achieve a blissful state of mind that's not talking about the blissful state of mind of Ritpa. There are many other blissful states of mind that one can achieve before that. When the mind is perfectly concentrated, it's another type of blissful mind. As the mind gets more and more freed of confusion, it becomes more blissful. But regardless of the mind becoming more blissful, more clear, any of these so-called experiences that come in meditation, no. the instruction is nothing special. Don't make a big deal out of it. So without expecting it to happen, without being disappointed when it goes away, it sounds a little bit trivial and flippant to say nothing special, but actually that's quite profound. If one meditates and becomes familiar with this state of mind of nothing is special, no big deal. You know, that's helpful in any situation, this idea of nothing special. I bang my foot against the table in the dark, and it hurts. Well, nothing special, of course it hurts. So what? So I've gotten an experience in meditation that's blissful. So what? Big yeah. deal. Is it nice? Yes. Does my foot hurt when I banged it? Yes. Well, so what? Obviously, there are deeper methods, but this is an initial one that actually works. What else? Yeah. Uh, my question is, uh, you uh, explained a lot about our interconnectivity of uh, all beings, and uh, what does it mean? Does it mean that all our individual mind streams are interconnected, and what actually highly developed beings uh, experience? Uh, I mean, do they experience some sort of connection to the universal stream of mind? And um, I ask because I'm living near the uh, railway station, and uh, in my everyday life, I uh, see people who are sick, who are poor, who uh, have a great deal of sufferings. And my question is, what uh, shall I actually feel towards them in terms of this interconnection? Uh, and um, so, what does the term interconnectivity actually mean? Yeah, there are many different levels of our interconnection with everyone. Buddhism certainly doesn't say that we are all connected by a little pipe of light or something like that, not in that way. Buddhism doesn't assert some universal stream of mind or universal consciousness that we're all part of. But if we look at what Buddhism itself says, Buddhism thinks in terms of rebirth with no beginning. So if there's a finite number of beings and an infinite time, no beginning, then at some time every being has been my mother or my father or my best friend. So, of course, that way of thinking requires confident belief in no beginning and in rebirth. So, for many of us who have not grown up 
in a society in which everybody believes in rebirth, then that type of argument is not terribly convincing. So there's another type of interconnection that's explained. It is that everything that we make use of and enjoy has come from the work of others. So in this building, everything, where did this electricity come from? The people who made the glass bulbs, the people who got the chemicals, who got it from the earth, who made the wires, who made the roads, who made the power lines. If you start to think about the amount of beings that are involved in making absolutely everything that we use and everything that we eat and everything that we wear, you start to see how we are interconnected and dependent on everybody. And... The poor people and so on that you mentioned suffering by the railway station. Well, the whole economy is interconnected. If the government is giving them any sort of financial help, maybe they're not. But if they are or people are somehow helping them, well, where does that money come from? And that affects the whole economy and it affects the whole society. We're all interconnected in that way. And people in some other part of the world are polluting terribly or they are using so much energy and so on. Well, that affects us as well. We don't live in isolation. That pollution is going to come to us. The environmental disaster is a disaster for everybody. And people in some other part of the world, in America, there's some economic crisis that went on with the banks and so on. And as a result... Russia is not selling you know, as much oil as before, or the price has gone down. That affects the economy and the welfare of everybody in the country. So everything is interconnected in that way. It's meant on this level, not on some mystical level, and you don't have to bring in past lives. And everybody's been my mother in order to understand this. Okay. Well, why don't we end here? Thank you very much.